This message was presented at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right, uh, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to see you. Um, I was uh, not expecting as many people uh, based upon the introduction of our seminar, uh, but I'm happy to see your faces. Um, my uh, co-presenter will be joining me shortly, but allow me to introduce myself uh, for those of you who do not know me. Uh, my name is Sebastian Braxton. I am a uh, former volunteer uh, for GYC. I used to collect meal tickets uh, about 16 years ago. <laughs> and then I became the first uh, speaker liaison for GYC. So we created a position to take care of the speakers and then I became the general vice president, and um, I'm also a preacher. Uh, but most importantly, as relevant to this seminar, is I am an entrepreneur. I'm a business owner, and uh, I've helped raise over $4 million. Jesse, stop being shy, man. So I've raised over about $4 million for different businesses. Um, there's no mute on that, just so you know. <laughs> All right. And um, I've worked in uh, film animation. I've worked in app development, UI, UX. I've worked in um, consulting, business consulting, uh, financial consulting, and also I'm um, trying to think of all the other different things. FinTech, financial technology, um, credit industry, and now I'm focused on corporate wellness and mentorship. Uh, right now, I just recently launched, about four months ago, an online spiritual mentorship program uh, designed for people who are trying to reach certain professional goals or start a business, but they want to be mentored by someone that agrees with their personal values. It's very, very important. I, I realize, as you'll go through this seminar, you'll realize how I came to that realization in starting that business and how quickly it's already grown uh, to about 3,000 to 4,000 in revenue every month. And I just signed a contract for 15,000 two weeks ago. And so in, in those things, it, it grows really quickly and it's not about the money because obviously I'm not in it for the money. And that will become clearer as well. But in that sense, I will be um, hoping to transition this for Jesse and I. Our long-term vision and our passion is to really revive a mindset of independent thinking among God's people. This idea that we are constantly fighting, as we should, for religious liberty, constantly fighting for people to get Sabbaths off, constantly fighting for people to work in a place where they feel like their boss agrees with their personal values and you don't have to argue for time with your family. In all these different circumstances, it is because we are working in areas and for organizations that do not espouse our values. We are becoming Daniels in Babylon's, Joseph's in Egypt, Esther's in Persia, trying to figure out how to navigate that. And those are some great success stories. We don't hear about all the ones that were not so successful. So that's kind of my background. Um, and I'll tell you more about that mentorship program later. But I want to give Jesse an opportunity to kind of introduce himself, talk to us about Hive Camp and all those other awesome things that you do. Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm excited to be here together with Sebastian. Yes. Um, I'm very excited about the things that we're going to be hearing, that he's going to be sharing, and I'll be sharing a little bit. Um, just very quickly, a little bit my, my background. Um, I was born and raised in Switzerland, so this is why I have a little bit of an accent. Um, and uh, when I was 18, I actually, both of my parents are teachers, so I, I had no no entrepreneurial background whatsoever, uh, very ideological, you know, um, but at 18, I got thrown out into the Philippines to do an evangelistic campaign. Um, I was uh, actually a drummer back then, yes. and uh, I got thrown as a drummer into the Philippines to do this campaign, and I started preaching, and I started getting so excited about it that uh, I wanted to get baptized with them. <laughs> because I wasn't baptized yet uh, during, this, during this time. And then all I wanted to do was give up my other stuff that I was trying to get into, which was drumming, um, for mission work. So I went 
um, to Honduras to work as a missionary to start a project there. And while starting a project in the, in the jungle, um, I realized that everything that I was doing was essentially entrepreneurship. And the more entrepreneurially I thought, the more missionary success I had. And so I, I realized, oh man, entrepreneurship and mission work are actually one and the same thing. Amen. And so that was for me the basis to then go out and start. Uh, I had the privilege of starting a number of um, nonprofits and also some for-profits, a translation company and then uh, a technology company. And so... Now, and, and I started, uh, you know, studying all of this stuff um, online mostly, um, <laughs> reading books, tons and tons of, I don't read actually, I only listen to books. Um, but anyway, so um, got into that and uh, now I'm working part-time for the GC um, in, a, in this technology project to crowd translate Ellen White's writings into 55 different languages. And, um, yeah, Amen. and uh, amongst uh, the, 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 one of the big things is we started Hive Camp based on this experience. Mm -hmm. Hive Camp is basically a startup community helping missional entrepreneurs to get started. So we help people to incubate their projects, to make an impact, a social but also a spiritual impact while being profitable. Amen? Amen. So that's... A little bit about our background. So I'm awesome. going to ask you to just jump into it. Sounds good. I want to start with a quote from the World Economic Forum. What we don't realize is that where our church began, the world is just now catching up to. And unfortunately, we've gotten away from those roots. And so this is what the World Economic Forum says. It's a societal change agent talking about entrepreneurship. Essential for developing the human capital necessary for building the societies of the future. They continue by saying it is not enough to add entrepreneurship on the perimeter. It needs to be at the core of the way education operates. My second favorite book by Ellen White is the book Education. I think I've read it maybe 10 times, maybe more, but I love the book. And it wasn't until I got into entrepreneurship training and consulting and working with business owners and people trying to start a business that I realized these ideas I was telling people, I'm quoting things from the book Education, that success depends less upon genius and more upon the, the right use of the opportunities given. That's direct quote from Education. That if we are truly experiencing true education, we will become masters and not slaves to what? Circumstances, which is fundamental to an entrepreneurial mindset. So a lot of people who have a ministry idea, a business idea, may not realize that success is often grounded in your and my experience in true education, which the World Economic Forum is saying this needs to be at the heart of education in order to really get society to where we want. So they say entrepreneurship and education increases societal resilience, individual growth, increased academic engagement, and improved equality throughout the world. Why is that the case? Because entrepreneurship is not the story of Mark Zuckerberg. It is not the story of somebody with a rich uncle or somebody had a trust fund that they inherited. Like Donald Trump comes and says, oh, I had a million dollars when I started. Yeah, give me a million dollars. You can give a fool a million dollars and he'll waste it all. I raised a million dollars for a startup, haven't seen one ounce of profit. I had enough money to change your life. Gone. Because I didn't understand the things that I'm going to talk about and Jesse and I are going to cover in this seminar. So I'm telling you the same thing that, you know, uh, one poet said. People say, oh, you know, you are so wise. And he says, well... You know, unfortunately, good judgment comes from bad judgment. <laughs> I made a lot of bad decisions to learn the things that I'm telling you. And I have horror stories for every single principle. When you think about schools right now, Adventist schools, non-Adventist schools, the problem is equally the same. Notice this graph here from Gallup in 2016. From fifth grade all the way to 12th grade, 
notice the student engagement decrease. So I want you to think about this. The closer you get to finishing school, the less engaged you are. From fifth grade, they're very engaged in school and in learning, and the only reason it goes up in 12th grade is because a lot of people drop out, so the percentage goes up. So don't be fooled that, oh, it's just senior-itis, you know, I just got to finish. That's not why it's higher. It's because people drop out. This is uh, one of the hiring managers at Google. He says, grade point averages and test scores are worthless. Do you see that word highlighted there? Worthless as a criteria for hiring at Google. This is the guy who's the senior VP. He's saying, listen, when people come to interview with Google and Facebook, they're not, they don't care if you went to Stanford and you have a 4.0 GPA. That doesn't mean you're going to be successful because they want to maintain an entrepreneurial mindset in the business to keep pushing exactly what they're trying to do. The same problem exists even in the workforce. 53% of people who actually go to a 9 to 5 job are not engaged. 13% are actively disengaged. That means they're actively working against the goals of the company. Think about that. Actively disengaged. They're the ones that come to work last to smoke break. You know, they're outside. Oh, yeah, I, I don't have the clock in. It's like 7.59. They're waiting until 8 o'clock to hit the clock. Those are the kind of people you want working for you? I'm an entrepreneur. I will never hire you. If I ever catch you waiting at the time clock, you'll be done that day. That's not the people you want. Especially when I know what it took to build that business. No way. 34% are actively engaged. And you notice that number is the same as the amount of students by the end of high school. 34% are actively engaged in their work. So you imagine to yourself... They're psychologically right, committed to their jobs, and they're likely to be making positive contributions to the, to the organization. Our ability to embrace an entrepreneurial mindset is limited by the ways in which we define it. We think this is an entrepreneur. Become Mark Zuckerberg, right? Be worth like 40 billion, then come out on TV and say you're going to give 99% of your wealth away. That's what it means to be an entrepreneur, right? You know, just take, you know, visits down in Monaco, and that's what you do. You're an entrepreneur. But that's exactly the wrong concept. These actually are most of the people who got these little old signs that they picked up at some sort of consignment shop to say, we're open sign. Hey, Auntie Ruth, are you still using that sign when you and Papa had whatever back in the day? Yeah, yeah, let me use that sign. Those are the real entrepreneurs. Those are the people that actually drive change in society. So we have to, as a critical concept, redefine entrepreneurship. This idea from Amar Bide, he, he has this concept that he calls humble improvised origins. There's no breakthrough technology. So he's talking about people who start businesses. No breakthrough technology. They have little or no formal planning. How many people here have a business idea? Let me see your hand. You have a business or a ministry idea. How many of you who have a business or a ministry idea you told someone? How many of those people told you to create a business plan? First, I want you to notice that Airbnb, no business plan. They borrowed their uncle's condo in Italy. Hey, can we just use your condo for like two weeks? We're going to rent it out to complete strangers just to test the business concept. No business model. They're like, we'll, we'll put up a website, we'll charge people, and we'll see if we get traction. You know what happened? The uncle got upset because it was booked up, and he couldn't go visit his own vacation destination in Italy. <laughs> Not realizing they had just stumbled upon an organization that was going to change the entire hospitality industry with no business plan. Humble, improvised origin. And you know how much money they used to start Airbnb? Zero. They cleaned his place for them. They're the ones that put up the ad. His friend was a web developer. Hey, just put up this basic one-page website. Hey, rent a place in Monaco, da-da, try it out. They got people. Ad hoc market research. People will tell you, who's your target market? You got to do all this market research, go to the library, right? Go to the local chamber of commerce and 
you know, in America at least, and less than $10,000 and little or no experience. You know, when I started my corporate wellness business, the crazy thing is I went down to a, um, a business meeting, networking, and someone said to me, so Sebastian, we really want to promote what you're doing. And um, we just want to know, what are your qualifications? Are you a medical doctor? No. Are you a personal trainer? No. Are you a nurse? No. Are you a physician assistant? No. So what qualifies you <laughs> to do corporate wellness? And the answer is, I'm passionate about the problem. I'm not in this because I have the qualifications. I'm in this because I'm passionate about the fact that most people are not healthy because they're at work. And their job is overworking them. And then you're going to tell them, hey, go ahead and get a champion juicer. Make sure you eat this tofu that tastes disgusting, no matter how you cook it. And make sure you do this and this and this. And then eventually you might lose weight after four years. People are like, no. But if I tell you I can actually help you lose weight and I can help your business save money and you don't have to add one hour to your day and you can lose weight at the same time. Oftentimes I tell entrepreneurs, you sell your product before you even build it. That's exactly what I did. The lady was like, sure, I'm sold. Where do I sign up? I didn't even have the website up yet. <laughs> I didn't have a way to collect payment. I said, give me a week. Uh, we just got to do the onboarding. <laughs> and before you know it, client acquired. Now I'm, I'm getting some traction. Now, this is an idea adapted from a man named George Land called transformation theory. Now, this is very interesting because he's talking about growth and complexity as that increases and over time. So he goes through three phases that he calls discovery, growth, and what he calls obsolescence or reinvention. We'll come back to that. So he says, when you are first dropped into an environment, your goal is to, to learn how to survive. That's your first goal. So when a baby comes into the world, it's just to learn how to survive. Whatever I got to do to survive. Then after you survive, then you grow. And then you either become obsolete or you reinvent yourself at the same time. Now, how do we transfer this into real life? So let's take a baby bear. So here comes a bear that's born into the wild. So when that bear comes on, what is the bear doing in the wild? What is he doing? He's learning about his environment, right? Don't eat that food. I know you like honey, but there's a lot of bees over there. So the mama bear is teaching this baby bear, this is how the world works. So during this stage, he's going through what we call exploration, observation, experimentation, ad adaptation. This is what he's doing. He's experimenting. He's exploring. He's observing. Wow, what's that? You ever notice that everything is amazing to kids? Have you ever noticed that? Everything is interesting. Everything, wow, how does this work? Like I show up with my kids at GYC, and my kids are like, oh, yeah, Papa, so this is where you're doing your seminar? Yeah, wow, okay, this is a nice room. These are nice tablecloths. And you're just like, I don't even notice the tablecloths. <laughs> I'm worried about, do I have an adapter for the projectors? <laughs> like, and in their minds, everything, oh, look at the lights. And look, you can do different light settings, right? Click, 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 click. Just hitting the buttons. You're like, stop, don't hit the button. And this is what we're doing. We start killing this sort of curiosity, this exploration, but that's how you learn. That's how kids figure things out. I was really shocked. You know, I, I showed up with these vegan cinnamon buns. I packed them, you know, before I hit the trip. And I put them in my room, and I have a little bin on top, and I put them in my room, not where my, my children are sleeping. And my two-year-old daughter finds a way to get to those cinnamon buns. Now I'm thinking she would have had to go through three doors, locks, you know, people watching and observing. And yet, as she learns her environment in the hotel room, she realized, okay, yeah, this is the time to go eat those cinnamon buns. Then I came back last night, cinnamon buns damaged. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> she's like, he's out at work, he's on stage with Jesse. <laughs> it's like, he's not here, so he can't watch. And it's crazy how quickly you can do that. Now, the second phase, the bear, as it learns, it starts exploiting its advantages. It understands, I'm stronger than certain animals. I can run faster, right? It starts replicating. It becomes efficient. And everything's about improving the processes that it knows that it already has. 
But eventually, it reaches a level where it has to adapt, right? This is an interesting quote. It is not the strongest that survive, nor the most intelligent, but the ones most responsive to change. Is that not why youth are leaving the church? Because we're not responsive to change. We want to do church the same way. So then young people come to church, and they're like, okay, yeah, um, the only thing you get to do is scripture reading, right? Maybe they'll actually do the children's story. And yet, you go to MIT, and when I was in Boston, you had a young lady who was 18 years old who was a new freshman. Actually, she was 17. A freshman at MIT. And MIT said, we'd like you to teach the intro to calculus classes this summer before you even start school. Can you imagine? You're not, you haven't even attended one class at MIT. And MIT already says, because you're a freshman, and we know that you're obviously very brilliant at math, we wanted to know if you're interested in teaching our intro to Cal course at 17. Really, so where do you think she's going to be by the time she's 21? But that same girl came to our church. She was never on the rostrum one time, the four years I was there. Never one time. Not song service, not scripture reading, not this. And the church asked me, you know, it was in a board meeting. They said, why do you think young people are not engaged? I said, because we don't challenge them. We don't believe in them. But MIT says, you're 17, develop a curriculum to teach integrals. At 17. We believe in you. Have at it. Good luck. <laughs> All of a sudden, internal motivation takes over. Her creativity takes over. Now she's in stage one. She's trying to figure out how to navigate this new environment at 17. You went from being the student for 17 years, now you're the teacher. And you're not just teaching anybody, you're teaching some of the brightest minds in the country at MIT. Teach them intro to calculus. Adam Smith said, every man lives by exchanging. It's Adam Smith, father of economics, right? This is a true statement. What are these points of transition? You have your interests, you have the needs of others, and you have your abilities. They all converge as this point, right, as you're going in this new environment. So as you're exploring, this yellow line is the fact that you realize that there's a lot of ambiguity and there's very low resources that go into this. Very low resources. Then your usefulness begins to decline at the end of this stage of growth, right? You're kind of, you're improving, your processes are getting better, you're very managerial, you're just replicating everything that you already know that you're doing, but you reach a point where all of a sudden, your usefulness to the world, the usefulness to your customers begins to decrease. Now you get to retirement, right? You do recreation, you, you get engaged in leisure, and then a shift happens, that connection is lost, you become complacent. Did you know that Kodak Pictures, is anybody old enough to know what Kodak is? Yes? <laughs> That's the saddest thing to say. Did you know that when I was studying branding in my master's degree, Kodak was the fourth wealthiest brand in the world after Disney, McDonald's. <laughs> Think about this, the fourth wealthiest brand in the world. Do you know what the fourth wealthiest brand in the world is today? I mean, you're talking about like Apple, Google, McDonald's, right? Kodak was right there. They're completely out of business. Because they reached this point when they said, oh, digital cameras came out. But we're Kodak, right? We print film. And you're like, wait a minute. All of a sudden, the company becomes complacent? Or instead of becoming obsolete, you could have just reinvented yourself. Because they didn't understand this, this is how you transform a company that's traditionally producing print film. But who cares if it's print or it's digital? We're Kodak. Like, does anybody know what a Kodak moment is? Yes. Think about the fact that your company owned a moment that's powerful. Whenever you saw something you wanted to remember, you called it Kodak moment. 
That's a Kodak moment. And they owned that, completely owned the space and lost it because they failed to re reinvent themselves. Either we grow or we die. Did you know this was a biblical principle? Yes? It's true for churches, true for businesses as well. Now, let's apply this to an entrepreneur. When you're starting off in your business idea, you're in what phase? Discovery. You don't have any idea if your business idea is going to work. You don't know if your ministry is going to take off. So in this particular stage, this is about exploring. This is about observing. This is about adapting. Peer networks, connecting with people, informal learning. Listen, before I got into corporate wellness, I couldn't tell you what a tibia tuberosity is or any of those things. Now I'm telling people, yeah, this is exactly why you're having pain in your hips because you realize your knees and your back are bad neighbors. And I'm breaking down to people that, listen, you may have pain in your knee, but it's a result of your hip. And this lady could not take stairs. I did one session with her. She's taking the steps. Two sessions later, she's on a treadmill at Planet Fitness for an hour. Guess how many clients I got after that? And everyone's thinking, oh, this guy's a trainer. I'm not a trainer. But I was so passionate about learning how do I impact this particular area, I read books. I mean, I was picking up books that looked like textbooks. Page number one, you know, with the little margin illustrations and stuff. You can tell it's written by a professor. And I'm reading this stuff and thinking, you know, in school, I would have been bored out of my mind. If you told me, Sebastian, you're going to take a lifestyle medicine class. So like, okay, guys, lecture number one. Okay, now notice here the slides will be available on the website, and you're just like, oh man, when is this class over? And then you got homework, but here I am, an entrepreneur reading the same textbook you throw in the trash, and your upset costs $180. And I was over here trying to find the money to buy the book. And I bought the book and started reading and consuming this book. And now I'm presenting studies on emotional intelligence, and people are saying, wait a minute, how did this guy notice this? Are you a doctor? I'm not a doctor. I just read the books. <laughs> so during this entrepreneurial discovery process, there's discovery begins. There's a lot of ambiguity, but your resources are low. So everything is about empathy. It's about curiosity, observation, inquiry, asking questions. This is what you're doing in that entrepreneurial phase. Unfortunately for many of us, with our business idea and concept, we lose this mindset. Or some of us, we never even had it. Now the second stage, now that you've found a way to actually create value, your whole focus is now efficiency. How do I get better at this thing? Now that the bear knows how to get the honey without being stung by the bees, it figures out how to become efficient. That's exactly what a business does. The complacency eventually sets in. You're very profitable. You become arrogant. You go through denial, back to basics. This is what happens to a lot of businesses that become irrelevant. And unfortunately, they lost their exploration. They lost their discovery. You know, McDonald's tried to jump on the Twitter bandwagon when Twitter was trending. And they came out with a hashtag that they bought. I didn't even know you could buy hashtags, right? So they bought a hashtag, and the hashtag was hashtag mixed stories. And so they said, oh, share your favorite experiences at a McDonald's, right? Hashtag mixed stories. Oh, it was their worst nightmare. People are like, oh, yeah. I remember going to McDonald's and talking to my, my brother-in-law, who was 16, who worked there, and told me people were urinating in the mustard. Hashtag mixed stories. <laughs> Whoa, all of a sudden, Twitter took over. And what they thought was going to be a positive McDonald's experience ended up being their worst. They had to pay Twitter to take it down. Please cut it off. And then they had the nerve to post a tweet and say, guys, this is not what we expected with these hashtags. You should be ashamed of yourselves. We wanted to share positive moments. And everybody's thinking, who in the world when they think of a positive moment, said, oh, I remember that one time we were at McDonald's. 
complete disconnection. That's not what makes McDonald's McDonald's. You're trying to sell something you never had, but everybody's had a conversation at a Starbucks. That's a different organization. Everyone's had to go to Panera to get free Wi-Fi. <laughs> All entrepreneurs do it. <laughs> Where can I get free Wi-Fi? Okay. <laughs> this is exactly what happens to many. The reason is nothing fails like success. We love to pat ourselves on the shoulder. And, and let me just tell you, I love my church. I'm not, I'm not trying to hate on the church. But sometimes you have to call a spade a spade. We pat ourselves on the back and we say we're baptizing 3,000 people every day throughout the world church. I'm trying to figure out most of those are not in North America. <laughs> but you see, when we feel like we're having success, nothing fails like success. Oh, look, we did so good. You did? Was that the goal? Because according to Ellen White, success in any line demands what? A definite aim. So your goal was to baptize 3,000 every day? Was that your goal? Or was your goal to take the gospel to the whole world and to finish this work? What was your goal? Now, let me just jump through this. I'm going to skip over a lot of this and just jump right into the meat and potatoes because we're halfway through. Entrepreneurship is the pursuit of opportunities to create value for who? Others. Ted Levitt from Harvard Business School, he uses the concept of what we call the creation of shared value. He says, until businesses start connecting the success of their business with social change, you will not see the growth that you want to see in your business. Here's the issue, and what are we, what are we really saying with this definition? A lot of times, our reason for starting a business is solving our own problems. <laughs> Man, you know, I'm tired of working for this company. Man, you know, I just want to have more time to do mission work. You know, the number one predictor that you're going to fail in business is if you're in it for money. That's Harvard Business Research. Investors, venture capitalists, they got all the data because they're the ones that have blown all the millions of dollars. <laughs> so they make sure they keep track of the data. <laughs> How do we identify who's going to succeed? Submitted to Harvard Business School, and the Harvard Business School says, what's your motivation for being in business? If it's money, you're going to fail. Because guess what? You're going to come to a point where there's some things you're just not willing to do for money. Especially when the amount of money is minuscule. There's days I worked 14 hours, only made eight bucks. Now, if you went to your job, and they said, we need you to be on shift for 14 hours. We're only going to pay you eight bucks. How many of you would stay at that job? You'd be like, ain't no way. But this is what entrepreneurs do. <laughs> because if I was in it for the money, I'm out. I'm like, this ain't worth it, man. I could get a job over here paying 40, 50 an hour. <laughs> Why am I working for $8 for 14 hours? Unless I'm passionate about a problem. So here becomes the mindset defined. What each of you do not realize in this room, and even people who are not in this room, we all are entrepreneurial material. We all engage in entrepreneurship because we all face problems and we all figure out ways to solve them creatively. One of the most interesting things I love when I, and I get the privilege by God to travel the world sit on planes with people and talk to them about the problems that they creatively that they solve. I say, what's something you think is very weird about you that you do? And people tell you crazy stuff. Like this lady told me like, oh yeah, you know, people used to think that I put hairspray, but actually I just take the stuff that I bought from my dog and I realize that it works and it's like half the price. You're like, oh snap. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> And you're, and you're shocked, but there she was, and I'm looking at the lady, and she says, what do you do? And I said, well, I, I work for the state of North Carolina. I do consulting for small businesses, economic development. I run a corporate wellness company, and, and I, I run an online mentorship program. She says, oh, yeah, I can never be a business person. I said, but you don't realize what you just explained to me was entrepreneurship. 
You identified a problem and you used what you had. You didn't go out and say, oh, I need to get $10,000 and test a solution. You started with what you had. So this mindset is actually there. This is um, a particular person, Edgar Schein. This is his concept or definition of culture. He says, culture is a pattern of shared basic assumptions learned by a group as it solved problems of external adaptation, that means how to adapt to the environment, and internal integration that has worked well enough to be considered valid and therefore be taught to new members as the correct way to perceive, think, and feel in relation to those problems. This is what happened when I got converted. I came into the church from the streets, hip-hop, all these different things, and all of a sudden, you know, coming to church with some baggy jeans and a hoodie and some Tims, right, that's just not, people teach me in the culture, Sebastian, that's not how you dress, you know, when you come to God's house. <laughs> so you're like, okay. And then I remember talking to uh, an elder one time in my church, and I was like, why do we close our eyes when we pray? Where in the Bible does it say that? And people are like scratching their heads and pages are flipping furiously. I'm pretty sure it's in here. <laughs> but in actuality, it was cultural. Because the same people will tell you you need to pray without ceasing. So you're going to close your eyes for 24 hours a day? Here's me as a new convert. Because guess what phase I'm in? Discovery. Exploration. Observation. I'm trying to figure out how does this thing work? But people who've been in it, they're in complacency. They've mastered the efficiency. They know all the songs, they know all the harmonies, everything. Then I remember going out, and when I became a deacon, I said, why do we have an opening and closing song? Like, what's the purpose of that? So there I was, sitting in my room, buying books from Andrews University Bookstore to learn about liturgy. But I was a business major. But I was just curious. <laughs> Why, why are we doing this? Now it makes perfect sense to me. I understand it. But you see, when you're passionate about a certain problem, an issue, it drives you. So a mindset, if we could define it this way, and this is a real mouthful, so I'm just going to skip over it and jump to a basic definition. A mindset is the underlying beliefs. Are the underlying beliefs and the tacit assumptions that drive our behavior. Most of us do not consider ourselves entrepreneurial material because of our underlying beliefs and our assumptions about ourselves and about how the world works. If you want to start a business, you need to have money. Have you ever heard people tell you that? In order to make money, you need money? You heard that before? Not true. My mentorship business started with no money. <laughs> Airbnb started with no money. You realize you paid Delta Airlines before you flew here, the money before you even used the ticket. So Delta had your money two, three months in advance before they even need to actually fund the plane or the pilot or the stewardesses to fly you here. That's called a customer-funded business model. She's like, oh, wow, that's a great idea. So if you can get people to pay you in advance, like Amazon, you order it, but it's not at your house, right? But Amazon has your money. You already paid. So it's crazy that you can convince people to give you their money 48 hours before you even get your product. And you want to pay to get it faster? Oh, that's going to cost you extra. <laughs> this is what we do. A mindset is unconsciously inquired, right? It's typically social. It operates effortlessly without awareness. It seeks to automate to reduce your cognitive load. That's a technical word to say so that you don't have to consciously concentrate and focus on what to do. That's what a mindset does. Here's a visual of what that looks like. The visible artifacts, your observable behavior. Underneath that is the explicit knowledge and your espoused values, right? Oh, we believe Jesus is coming soon. Oh, we, that's where this level is. You came to GYC because you believe young people want the word of God. They want to be inspired. They want to finish the work. That's your behavior. 
your explicit knowledge and espouse values are this work is going to be finished by young people. We believe that. Amen? Amen. So if you believe that, that's, that's your espoused values, but your implicit knowledge, your deeply held values, taken for granted beliefs and assumptions is your mindset. And we wonder why this work isn't done, because we haven't tapped into the mindset of people. And entrepreneurship, in order for it to work, in order for it to operate, you have to have the entrepreneurial mindset. Now self-supporting, now walking away from GYC and saying, I'm inspired, there's a problem that has moved my heart. And I'm going to go out and try to pursue that opportunity for others. You're not going to find young people going back to their local church inspired when the problem is theirs. But when they go back to their church and they say, I know a whole bunch of my young people need this. I remember a gentleman from Latvia came back in uh, 2010 to GYC. At the time, I was the general vice president, and we organized a meeting of European leaders, youth leaders, and he got the DVD copies of the sermons from 2009 Louisville. He went back to Latvia, and he said, well, I can't bring them to GYC because they ain't got the money, and I can't bring GYC to Latvia because we ain't got the money, but there's this entrepreneurial mindset. He took the DVDs, got them all in a room like this, and just showed the DVDs. People were responding to the appeals on the DVD. The next year, he said, Sebastian, we want to invite you to come. We're going to do the first youth conference in Latvia. 95% of the youth in the whole country were there. Then we sat down, we did a five-year plan. Within two years, he was the youth director of the union. Younger than me. A lot younger than me. And you say, how did that happen? Entrepreneurial mindset. He wanted to solve a problem for other people. His goal was not to become the youth director. His goal was not to become a pastor. His goal was not to get fame or glamour. He just wanted to see the young people in his country revived and on fire for God. And he didn't even know he had an entrepreneurial mindset when he was doing it. I want to introduce you to Uncle Cleve Mormon. Uncle Cleve Mormon, there's a book written on his life by the man who actually created the business, the Stairmaster. Ever heard of the Stairmaster? You can go to any gym. <laughs> they got a stair climber. He's the one that invented that. He was working for this man in 1958 in Glen Allen, Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta, where segregation was rife. Most of the jobs held by African Americans were actually in cotton fields. Now, schools were not yet integrated yet. And so, Cleve was an individual who was showing us that the concept of an entrepreneur existed long before the word was popular. Because in that moment, Cleve said to himself, I'm not going to work in cotton fields. He didn't have a lot of education. He didn't have a rich uncle. He didn't have a lot of money. That's not where he came from. But all of a sudden, he started thinking differently. And I want to use his life to illustrate what this entrepreneurial mindset is. So this is actually required reading by a lot of organizations. And it's the book on his life is called Who Owns the Ice House? I have the book right over there. I can show it to you and go from there. These are the eight lessons that they call that come from Uncle Cleve's life that summarize what we call an entrepreneurial mindset. The first one is the power to choose. The second one is recognizing opportunities, turning your ideas into action, the pursuit of knowledge, creating. Now, these ideas are constantly cycling back and forth until you get an appropriate business concept. <laughs> then from there, you begin creating wealth, you build your brand, you create community, and the power of persistence. The owner of Twitter, when he was interviewed, Tech stars, they said, how does it feel to be an overnight success? And he said, well, if you work at it for 10 years, you'll be an overnight success. Because <laughs> they've been working on Twitter for over 10 years. But in the minds of everyone else, Twitter came out of nowhere. 
They're like, bro, we were up in here eating pizza with no money, trying to figure it out. Long before people were talking about Twitter. Now Twitter can get you fired. <laughs> Twitter can get you traded from your basketball team in a professional sport. Twitter can get you banned from a television network. Twitter can start a movement in order to expose a whole bunch of serial abusers. But do you think that's what they had in mind when they built it? No, they just wanted to solve a problem. And now here we are. So when you look at this, right, I also summarize this differently for students when I do this for high school students or middle school and teach them about an entrepreneurial mindset. We call it choice, opportunity, action, knowledge. Instead of wealth, we call it resourcefulness. Instead of brand, we call it reliability. Instead of, and then we go to community and then persistence. So these are the concepts of an entrepreneurial mindset. And we've seen this impact not only entrepreneurs, but actual schools. Fifth graders, all the way up to college, community colleges, and now the city of Albuquerque is using it to train all their city workers. And within three months of using it and teaching them an entrepreneurial mindset, they've had workers already save them over a quarter million dollars because they were thinking entrepreneurially and not like an employee. They were empowering them to solve problems. Now, I'm not gonna get into this canvas right now, but I just wanna kinda go through these, have Jesse chime in. He's being really shy right now, but I know he's not shy. <laughs> but he's, he's kinda soaking it in. When you take the power to choose, I want you to think about the fact that Uncle Cleve was living in the Mississippi Delta in the times of segregation where you couldn't even have a bank account. And this man figured out how to own an ice house. Now, all of a sudden, right, he recognized in this moment that he was, his life and his experience was not determined by his circumstances. He realized that one of the greatest gifts to us as a human being is our power to think and to do. It's true education. That's what true education is supposed to develop. To make you not a victim of circumstances, but a master of them. Cleve saw the situation and said, I'm not going to be picking cotton until I'm 75. So he decided, I can choose to do something else. And he realized that while the slaves are working out in the fields and the masters and all the people guarding, he said the one thing they always need was ice. Everybody wanted a cold drink. Everybody had, you know, the ice with the fan blowing to order to cool them down sitting on the porch. So they always needed ice. And he realized he saw an opportunity. But you see, he had a compelling goal. And his compelling goal was, I don't want to leave this world picking cotton. That was his motivation. That's all he wanted to do. Now, can you think about the fact, how different is that from Mark Zuckerberg? But this man figured out how to own his own business in 1950s. Black customers and white customers. The, slave, the plantation owners were coming to him for ice. And the guy who wrote the book, who was his first employee, was his nephew, Clifton, at 13. And the first day he got in, he said everybody respected Uncle Cleve because he's like, man, we saw him going to the ice house and every day he's working. We're like, man. He doesn't have to get picked up by the trucks that are taking us to the cotton fields. He gets to go work for himself. And everybody just looked at him with respect, but they never questioned those underlying assumptions and beliefs that they had the power to choose as well. You have to have a compelling goal as an entrepreneur. Here's the number one issue that happens to most people who start a business or a ministry. We fall in love with the product instead of the problem. Oh, I'm trying to build this app. And whenever I, I meet with customers, when they tell me these kind of things, Sebastian, I want to build an app. I want to start a social work, online counseling that has biblical whatever. They, you know, they got their whole vision. And I say, so that the customer can be what? So that what? I want to build this ministry where people can go be missionaries in Southeast Asia and have this so that, so that they can um, 
feel well supported and they don't have to leave the mission field prematurely so that, so that they're, they're, they're um, able to serve longer and to win more souls. So that, and I go five times. Because when you don't understand your compelling goal, we're so busy talking about the product, we're so busy talking about the ministry, we need to be talking about the problem. You got something? Go ahead. Well, I was going to intersect here. Yeah. Um, but I was, I was enjoying the presentation. So. <laughs> um, I want to say something. You know, Sebastian here has been trying to convince all of us that the entrepreneurial mindset is for everyone. Amen? Mm-hmm. Why is it for everyone? Because essentially it's the biblical mindset, right? Mm-hmm. Now, we see this is true education, right? So everybody's supposed to have these elements, this discovery element and so forth in, in the way we think. Now, I'm going to just bring it, I'm going to just bring it down to the, to yes. the basics, okay? Um, the truth is that that doesn't mean that everybody can start a business. That's right. Okay, so part of it is understanding the reality that even though we're all supposed to have an entrepreneurial mindset, whether you're starting a business or whether you're working in a business, you still should have that entrepreneurial mindset. Okay, so this is why it's not really a negotiable whether we should or shouldn't have this. So this is what this is what he's been trying to trying to tell us. Now, one of the things is this in a business. There's three personalities in general. Three personalities. What are they? Three. First one is technician. Is the technician. Okay, you've got the technician. What does he do? He just does the work. He does the work, right? He's the one that's on the computer or he's with the customer. He's, he's, he's the technician. He's doing the technical work. Then you have the second personality. What's the second personality? The manager. The manager. You've got a manager. What does he do? He just oversees. He oversees the technicians. Exactly. So these are specific personalities, right? There's, and you can identify who you are or who the majority of you, your personality is, right, in those elements. Now, the third one, who's that? Entrepreneur. That's the entrepreneur, okay? So the entrepreneur is the one that... Is, does this whole discovery thing, ideation, he likes ideas, he likes innovation, he likes to, you know, figure out things and so forth. He loves risk, right? Yep. So the entrepreneur has that personality. The manager hates the entrepreneur. Yep, because okay. we disrupt your structure. Exactly. So every time, you know, the manager loves detail. He loves perfection. He loves processes. He loves that everything runs smoothly. This is what a good manager does. My wife, she's a manager, okay? <laughs> so is my wife. <laughs> really, you know? So every time I, I, I have this, I have a stronger, you know, a big percentage of my personality is very entrepreneurial. So, so I come... Every evening I come to my wife and I tell her, hey, I got this idea, you know, this is, you know, this can really change the world, you know, and this is what I'm always thinking about, right? So, 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 and guess what she says? She's the manager. Nope. It's like, JC. How are you going to do that? Don't disrupt our plans for 2020. Does that make sense? No, no, no. We got everything planned out. This is how, you know, now she's learned to deal with me and she's like, so I've, you know, I've, I've helped her to know that, you know, when I come with an idea, you know, first you got to be positive and then you got to ask the questions. Okay. So, so then it works. <laughs> That's right. Okay. That's right. <laughs> but, but the, the point is the entrepreneur and, uh, and the managers, usually they don't really get along well. Now, praise the Lord, my wife, we get along excellently. Thank Amen. God. Amen. Um, because of the flexibility, you know, if you understand who, what, what your role is and what, who their role is, you know, then it, then it works better. And in a business, it's exactly the same thing. Um, most technicians don't like neither the managers nor the entrepreneurs. Why? It's very simple. Changing my job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The entrepreneur has an idea. The guy has to, the manager has to implement it, and now I have to change everything that I'm doing. And actually, you have no idea what you're doing because you're not doing the work. That's right. 
I'm doing the work, right? Actually, what a technician usually thinks in their inside of them is, I should actually run the business because I actually know what it takes to do this, right? I'm doing the work. So, so there's this constant <laughs> fighting within, within the, in any business actually, uh, there's these dynamics. So if you understand the dynamics, it helps running a business. <coughs> but in, inside of each one of us, and this is what I'm trying to get at, and then yeah. I'm going to no, give it back good. to you, okay? You're good. <laughs> um, is inside of us, we all have these three personalities, essentially, inside of our personality. The question is, how much of each of those three personalities do you have? Because if you don't have a good percentage, or some, I shouldn't say Strong majority, percentage. but if you, have, if you don't have some percentage of entrepreneurial thinking, then you shouldn't run a business. You shouldn't start a business, okay? That's so right. now the thing is, you can learn to develop that, um, that part of your personality, <clears throat> but it's not easy because it's based on it's actually based on our childhood, it's based on our parents, it's based on genes, it's based on many things. You know, how risk averse are you, you know? I have a very, very high tolerance of risk. I don't mind risk. You know, if it fails, it fails. <laughs> I don't care. My That's wife. Failure is not an option. Failure is not an option, you That's know? Right. <laughs> she will study, she will read the entire instruction of any little product, you know? It's like, let's buy a toothbrush, you know? Like she'll read what's on the back of the toothbrush to, ex to understand, to make sure that I, she's doing it in the most efficient way, you know, she's going to use that toothbrush. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So, yes. so this, is, this, is, this is actually part of why I married her, you know, so she, 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 really, she really brings uh, these, per, these, these um, talents to the table. But this is really important that um, you really need to have... If you don't have tolerance for risk, then the probability that you're going to be uh, happy, happy in entrepreneurship is very, very low. That's okay? right. So if you, have, if you have high risk, then you can, high risk tolerance, you, you, you will be, you won't die in the process of starting a business. If you, if you have very, <laughs> very risk averse, then you will get depressed you know, in the process of trying to start something, okay? So anyway, so think about those things. If you're high technician uh, material, then you, re you better learn the, the other's parts very fast and very well before you start something. Otherwise, you'll be, um, you'll be stuck doing something that is going to actually, you're going to feel like you're going to be completely a slave for the next 10 years because entrepreneurship is not start an idea for one year. Amen. And then, and then <laughs> and launch and then start the next one, right? It's a, it's a long haul. So this is part of, I, I'm just bringing the, Thank you know. You. Summarizing. Thing down. So just to review that, and that comes from The E-Myth by Michael Gerber, um, which is a critical book you should pick up. Whenever people tell me that they want to be an entrepreneur, I tell them to read E-Myth and I tell them to read The One Thing. The one thing, those two books you need to read. If the E myth is just like E dash M Y T H, E myth. Yep, the entrepreneur. Re revisited. Myth. Yeah, revisited. Revisited, that's right, because it's got an updated version. So I, wanna, I want you to think about this question for those of you that have a business or a ministry idea. What is your compelling goal? In the Japanese, it would say, What is your ikigai? What's the thing that's gonna motivate you? People are shocked that even on my days off, this is why my wife is like, you don't rest. I say I'm taking vacation, but I'm getting up at 5 a.m. She's like, your idea of vacation is, okay, no kids, no distractions, right? Up at 5 a.m., in the room, on the whiteboard, right? I have a whiteboard in my office. Oh, man, this could totally work. And I'm like texting and emailing people. And she's like, how is this vacation, right? And then it's like, even when I'm playing with my kids, I turn it into an entrepreneurial venture. I'm like, man, how can I, oh yeah, this would be innovative, let's do this, right? So I took my kids, we're having family worship, and my daughter's like, Papa, you know, worship is boring. And I'm like, oh, snap. I'm like, I'm like an international preacher. <laughs> it's like, 
<laughs> she said, worship is boring. <laughs> so I was like, man, I, I got a problem to solve, right? So my wife would be like devastated. Like she'd be tearing up. She'd probably text me at work. Babe, the kids don't like worship, you know. <laughs> what should we do? We need to get on the phone and pray, right? <laughs> do our children know the Lord? <laughs> it's like my mindset is, okay, I have a problem. I'm like, how can I, how can I solve this problem? So then I said, okay, I got something for you guys tonight. So I got excited, right? And my kids are like, what? Okay, it's probably going to be the same thing. So what I did was I'm like, I'm going to teach them the parable, right, of this hidden treasure where Jesus, you know, he goes in and he's talking about this man who found treasure in the field and he sold all that he had, right? So my kids come to worship and I pulled out the, you know, their little monopoly money. And I was like, here, you know, this is like $10,000, right? And this is $5,000. And this is, you know, whatever $1,000 had their money. And then as I started telling the the story in worship, I said, now, here's the thing, guys. I have hidden some things in the house. I even had printed out clues and stuff, right, at their reading level. So they're trying to figure out the poem. And so they figure out the, they're like, oh, it's in the prayer room, right? So they run all to the prayer room, right? They're like falling all over each other. Then they come back and they find it. And they're like, oh, wow, you know, and it has like a little prize. Like, oh, yeah, you get to go with Pop on a trip to the hotel or whatever. So they're like, oh, yeah, this is mine. This is mine, right? So then they come back and they're like, Papa, I found it, I found it. I said, but here's the thing, guys. You have to give me all your money if you want it. That's the only way you can keep it. And the crazy thing is, right, my youngest was like, here, take the money. <laughs> She's like, take it. <laughs> it's like, I want my ice cream. <laughs> it's like, take the money. <laughs> but you could see the struggle in my older two kids' minds. It's like, man, should I give you this money? Like, and I said, now you understand when Jesus had to buy this world on the cross, there was a struggle. He wasn't dealing with monopoly money. So then immediately, right, finish worship. My wife comes home. Kids are running to the, mama, worship was awesome, right? <laughs> it's like, papa did this. We had this. We're all over the house. We had monopoly money, right? They're like all talking at the same time. And you realize it's like, yes, it's not about the money, right? I'm not pursuing that because my kids can pay me $100,000 a year salary. (laughs) That's what drives an entrepreneur. They have a compelling goal, something they're trying to figure out how to crack this thing, and that drives them. So as you and I think about it, I want you to ask yourself that fundamental question. What is your compelling goal that's driving you? to start your business or your ministry? What's gonna make you wake up? What's gonna make you stay up late? What's gonna make you excited when you have free time? Now, I know we got like basically one minute left. (laughs) So I just wanna kinda jump quickly um, down to some things I had to hope. I'm gonna end here. You guys know what business this is? Anybody have an idea what business that is? Huh? Samsung, that's exactly right. They were selling uh, bicycle parts, and um, it's interesting how a business can learn how to change and adapt, right? This is what they used to look like, and they're still surviving because they had an entrepreneurial mindset. That's Samsung, long time ago, <laughs> 1950 or whatever it was. This was Samsung. You and I, if we have an entrepreneurial mindset and we come to these values, and I just kind of want to go back to this uh, canvas again, these core concepts. These are the elements of entrepreneurial thinking. And it's going to be fundamental to your success in building your business or building your ministry. Driven not by money, but by a compelling goal. The fact that you and I decide as entrepreneurs that the future does not have to be experienced, but that it can be created. You can create the future. When I was first baptized in Adventism, there was no GYC. These conferences didn't happen. Now they're all over the world. One is starting up in Brazil next week. All because of entrepreneurial thinking. So because of that, 
I want to challenge you. Jesse and I want to challenge you. Everyone's not designed to start a business, that's for sure. <laughs> You're not designed to run a business. But you can find someone who does have that entrepreneurial personality to partner with. But I want you to walk away and recognize all of us are entrepreneurial material in that we can develop the mindset of what allows them to succeed, just like Uncle Cleve in the Mississippi Delta during segregation where the only options were selling cotton and picking cotton. Thank you. Let's um, close with a word of prayer. Yep. And uh, I want to invite you guys to the next session that we're going to talk about. Um, we'll be sharing how to test your idea, your business idea, or your ministry idea for feasibility. Yep. Is it going to work or is it not going to work? Very and low money, framework. low risk, and get that feedback that you need. Okay, yep. let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, thank you so much that you have all called us to have this, this mind of, of, uh, of God and have this entrepreneur part in it that we can really help the world to solve these biggest problems that people face today. Mm -hmm. And Lord, we need a new generation of young people and of Adventists that are thinking like entrepreneurs, that are thinking to seek to solve people's problems, and by doing that, actually creating value for them and, and showing them that God really cares about their problems. Amen. And Lord, that that might be a, a, a channel through which people, many, many people can come to understand that you are really such a loving God. And so we're grateful for this calling. Lord, help us to implement these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take a sacrificial initiative for Christ. To download other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.